in essence, a parable. And what a parable means in the original language is beside cast, para, follow. So you've got, when Jesus told a story, it could have been right out of real life, and he told that story, and in, intermixed with the story was a lesson. So he cast beside a real life story a lesson. So this will have scriptures involved, but it will also have a storyline that will go through from the beginning to the end. Before we begin, let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for this morning. We're thankful that you can give us peace, you can give us wisdom. And Lord, you share right from that scripture reading that it comes from your word, from the scriptures. That we could have maybe known from a child or somehow later on in our lives. But Lord, we're thankful for the scriptures, that we can open them, that we can understand them, and that you can give us wisdom as we apply them to our lives. Guide this story to be one that shows us the need to not only read, understand but to accept the scriptures as a communication from you and then share them with the world around us may the word of god speak to us now we pray in jesus name amen maybe you know what you were doing back in 2008 but i was in nebraska and i had an eventful year and i decided that i wanted to have a prolonged stay over in oregon so as a pastor, you get a certain number of weeks of vacation. And when you deplete them, well, you can speak outside of your church two weeks out of the year in addition to that. So I wanted to have an experience where I could be back in Oregon and I could take my vacation and then have a couple more weeks off afterwards. So I decided to have a working vacation where I would go become a guest evangelist at my home church where I was baptized at. They had uh, built a new sanctuary and they needed really kind of a kickstart to their new year. And so I decided to approach the pastor in 2008, and I said, you know, next year is a year of evangelism. I'm willing to hold meetings in my district, but if you need someone to be an evangelist in your church in Winston, Oregon, I would be willing to go and do that. And so we began interacting. We got towards the end of the year, and we scheduled an, an overview weekend where I would go and I would give them an overview of what to expect in 2009 when I came to do the meetings. And so what happened was the overview was scheduled for December of 2008. So I brought my family out to Oregon. We did the overview weekend where I told them about how they would begin friendship evangelism and they would eventually would invite those people to the meetings and we would do advertising in addition to that. And then we would involve the members in the visitation and it would be a program where we would have these people become friends of your church before we were done. And so he liked that. We presented it to the church and... That weekend, I spoke there to give the whole church an overview. And the next week, I began to interact with this young man that was about my age. And this young man, we'll call him Mark, my similar age, very intellectual, but he was believing in the 2012 Mayan prophecy at the time. And some of you know that's come and gone, so it's obviously it was false. Uh, nothing, the world didn't end they believed that somehow some energy or something over time would be released in 2012. And most believed that it was the end of the world because of that. And so he was wrapped up into this whole thinking of the end of the world's coming. It's coming in just three short years or less. And you better be ready. Have we heard things like that before? Yeah, like in the year 2000, right? And so I noticed every time I talked to him that fear was right below the surface. It's almost like he was high on fear 
You know how some people get to the point where they, every time they talk to you, this, this whole theory comes out, and it's all fear-based, and you wonder to yourself, I wonder how they sleep at night? Well, that's what it seemed like with this young man. And so I went up to his cabin one night after I got done at the church, and as I was walking up there, I said, Lord, why am I walking up here? Because I'd gotten out of my car, and I looked up, and I saw his cabin light on over near Marie's folks' house, and I said, I'm going to go walk up there and talk to him. As I'm walking up there, the path, the thought hits me, what are you going to talk to him about? And I thought, well, the 2012 Mayan prophecy, and then we're going to bridge it over to the Bible. And so I go over there, I knock on his door, he opens it up, he welcomes me in, we go in, we sit down, and he begins to just spew this stuff out again, almost like a broken record. And the thought that I'd had in my mind before came tumbling out of my mouth, and I'm not saying this is the perfect way to witness to somebody, but it happened. I said, so you believe that, but how do you sleep at night believing that? Because he was talking about a Borealis machine up in the North Pole and how it would cause northern lights. And when the northern lights went off, then an earthquake would take place, and an earthquake would take place, and all these different things would take place in the world. And then he threw in the oil company. The oil company had something to do with it. And then it's just all these little pieces. And I said, you know, how do you sleep at night with all of that fear? Well, some nights I don't sleep so well. I said, well, how does that make you feel? And we just, and I've known this guy for years, and we just begin interacting about this whole fear-based prophecy system. And I said, well, he said, well, how do you react to the Mayan prophecy? I said, well, I haven't studied it that much, but what I have studied shows me that there is some truth to some elements of it, but there's a lot of things I have questions about still. And I said, I'm not going to lose sleep over it, though. And he wondered, as he does sometimes out loud, all right, well, what do you have to say? You're a preacher. What do you have to say? And I said, well, if you really want me to share, then I'm going to open up the Bible and share with you. And so he gave me permission. I opened it up to Daniel chapter 2. And I didn't do the usual image scenario. Instead, I decided to share with him some words that I'm going to share with you. It says in Daniel chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there, please do so. Daniel chapter 2, verse 17. Then Daniel returned to his house, explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Probably familiar with the story. Nebuchadnezzar has had the dream, he's called the wise men, he's lumped together Daniel and his friends, and the execution order has gone out. Daniel, in response, asks for time and does a prayer meeting. And as this prayer meeting continues, it says in verse 19 of Daniel 2, During the night the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. And I paused there. I said, do you notice some interesting words there? And I'm not the perfect witness, but I'm praying this whole time that somehow, since God put this text on my mind, it will speak directly to his need. And notice in the text, I told him, it says, Wisdom and power are his. 
wisdom and power. What does it mean to have wisdom, I asked him. Well, you know lots of things and you're able to, to do something with it. I said, so God knows, he says, all wisdom and power are his. So wisdom and power. He knows everything. Don't you think he knew before this Mayan prophecy theory came out whether or not the world would end in 2012? Oh well, yeah, if he knows everything, then of course he knows that. Don't you know, don't you believe then if he knows everything, and I'm just saying for the sake of argument, he does, that he would then know all about the conspiracy theories of the governments and the oil company and all these people involved with it. Yeah. And then it says he has all power. So if he knows all of those things and he has power, wisdom and power are his, then in order for those things to be happening in our world, then in some way they have to go through him. He would then be in control of what's going on. I guess that could be a way of arguing it. And so for the oil companies and the Borealis machine and the 2012 Mayan prophecy to all just come together and the world end in 2012, then that would have to be something that would be somehow validated here in this book. Now he was raised going to a Sabbath-keeping church, and he, of course, knew where I was headed with this, and I was headed to the very next verse. He changes times and seasons, he sets up kings and takes them down. So if Obama and all these different other worldly leaders are the ones who are somehow going to connive and come together with a plan to end your life and the world, and 90% of the population, then this verse is telling me that for whatever reason, God has put people on thrones and he will take them down in his time. And so it's not something I'm going to be worrying about and losing sleep over at night. For whatever reason, they're in power at this time, at this season, and until he sees fit to remove them, whether through human instrumentalities or through divine intervention, I'm not going to worry about it. That's how I sleep at night. Well, that gives me some hope. I can imagine someone saying that to you. And you haven't even gotten to the next part. In verse 22, he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells in him. All of those dark secret meeting rooms that are supposedly taking place, which some of them probably are, he knows exactly what's taking place there. So what is his focus then? And what is my focus as a preacher? My focus is what this chapter is talking about. Is that, yes, there are worldly kings and kingdoms, but there is a coming kingdom. And I explained to him just in brief that whole vision that he had seen when he was younger. About, he, he read about this. The head of gold, the arms and chests of silver, all of that. These, these kingdoms. And eventually they're demolished by God's coming kingdom. So it's not a Borealis machine. It's not earthquakes and tremors. It's not an asteroid. It has nothing to do with those things. The world ultimately will end because God puts an end to it. He wanted to learn more, so I gave him Kenneth Cox's book on Daniel. And then I told him, you should read the whole book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, and then we'll talk again. So I left him that night with that prescription from Pastor Miller. Here you go. I wrote it down for him. 
Next morning, he's read through Daniel twice, Revelation twice, Kenneth Cox's book, and now he wants more. So now what are you going to give him? Well, you're going you're gonna to give him exactly what he want, he's asking you for. So he begins asking me, what about these earthquakes and all of that? All right, Bible students, what would you give him? Shout it out. What chapter or two out of the Bible would you give this guy? Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, right? So you give him those chapters. Write them down on a piece of paper. Here you go. All right, so he's going to read this on his own, and then he's going to get back to me. So I give that to him. He gets done just a short time later with that, comes back to me and says, okay, God's in control. The world's only going to end when he comes. These earthquakes and things like that are just part of the overall picture. They're not really the closing things. But Matthew 24 says that you're going to flee to the wilderness. How's God going to take care of me in the wilderness? All right, question thrown to you. What are you going to answer that? He did it for Israel. So I tell him, go back and read Genesis and Exodus, especially Exodus. So he goes back and he reads Exodus, and he especially focuses on Exodus 16 and 17, the man of the quail and then the water coming out of the rock. He comes back and says, well, okay, he provided for the nation. I said, well, if he could provide for 600,000 men plus women and children, do you do not, don't you believe then he could provide for one human being out in the wilderness? Yeah. Okay. I see that. But I believe God is a tyrant. So why is somebody coming at you with all this? They're, they're questioning, they're, they're checking out your views. And I said, what do you mean? We just read about how he's in control, how he's ultimately going to bring a peaceful end to this world and all of that. Well, remember in the Old Testament, I was also reading in there about how in the Old Testament he wanted whole nations wiped out. You guys have heard this before, haven't you? Yeah, okay. Like the Moabites. I said, I'm so glad you picked the Moabites. <laughs> They're the easiest ones to deal with. Do you realize what the Moabites did to their children through their worship system? They sacrificed their children in the fire. And that's just, not just walking upon fiery coals either. That's, you're baking these children to death. The sexual immorality of that nation was horrendous. And can you imagine being a neighboring nation to the Moabites and wondering to yourself, when is it that they're going to come over and take my children away and sacrifice them in the fire? You ever put yourself in the neighboring nations? And so I was just, just reasoning with him. I'm not telling you that it's all there in the Bible. The one part in the Bible is how they sacrificed their children in the fire, their sexual immorality, their warfare methods were different than, than those of the Israelites. And they were a feared nation. And so I said, if you add all that together and then just put yourself in the shoes of the nations around them and maybe, maybe you lost a child because they came and they raided your camp and they took your children and they, you know that they're going to kill them in the fire. You're gonna, they're going to roast them over the fire. I said, how long would it take for you to want to have somebody hold that nation in check? You can answer the question if it was your child. Or if you were victims of their marauding bands or their crude warfare methods. You would eventually cry out to heaven and ask God to intervene. And then when he intervenes, since he knows everything, if there is any other way to intervene besides wiping out the whole nation, don't you think since he knows everything that he would have done something different 
if there's any other way. Another thing he didn't realize, and, and it's interesting how you're sitting there and you're going back and forth with somebody, and these thoughts, you're, you're saying, Lord, I don't know how to answer this one. And, and, and another thought comes in, and I said, oh, oh yeah, and what about, um, what about the women and children? I said, you haven't asked me about the women and children yet. Who raises the children to become like that? The men are out there doing the agrarian methods, and the women are primarily in the homes. You look at the story of Nehemiah, you find eventually they wanted to separate those foreign wives, not because of the righteousness of Israel versus them, but because of the influence of those women on the children. They'd be the ones who'd be at the home, would be raising those children. And so in a way, they had their hand in it as well. Oh yeah, that's fine, but what about the children then? You can wipe out the men and women, but what about the children? And so we got back and forth with this whole tyranny of God. He thought God was a tyrant because he wiped out the children too. And how would you answer that part? You know, sometimes you don't have an answer. Best I had was, well, we don't know exactly the children would grow up to be based on generational sins. We don't know if somehow they've been influenced already. And so God went ahead and I trust that in his knowledge, since he knows everything and all power is in his hand, that he did what was best by those nations that you're reading about. He's like, okay. I guess I'll accept that. I said, if you have a question about it, go to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and read them. Look at those Gospels. Ask yourself a question. Is God shown as a kind God in the, in the interactions with human beings in those chapters? If He's shown as to be a kind God, then why do we treat him so much the way we did in those chapters? And if there's any other way of saving us, and if that's the kind of God that he is, and he has that kindness in his heart that he doesn't wish for anyone to perish, he would rather have himself be tortured and abused. And he's the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New. Then I trust that that same God had a good reason for dealing with the nations in the Old Testament the way he did. So read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Tell me what you think. So he reads those puts aside the God is angry part. Only thing left he has really is that God holds a gun to my head because God has hellfire at the end of the Bible. Yeah, that's the only thing left. It's like the last nail on his, his spiritual death coffin over there. If I could nail that one down, then I think I can move him beyond. But I wasn't ready yet to do that. Instead, his fellow believer in 2012 came over that day and I didn't get a chance to answer that part. And I'm praying, Lord, you better give me a good one for that because I don't, you know, it does kind of appear like God has a gun to people's head at the end. Though I trust you're the same in the Old Testament and the New and down at the end of time. I trust you're the same too. I need a good answer for that. So he provided me some time. His, this other guy, Jack, comes over. He's, a, he's, a, he's actually a teacher of the 2012 Mayan prophecy theory. And he begins to interact with me. We learn how to do primitive. He shows me how to do primitive fire uh, with, the, with the bow and everything like that. German heritage. We both have long noses. <laughs> We're both, uh, and we ended up getting into a, a philosophical discussion regarding hellfire. And I went ahead and took a few licks from that and I went back to my room and I said, Lord, I'm going to need some answers for this guy and for Mark. 
because I barely threw a punch back at the guy during the interaction. I was just listening mostly. And so I said, Lord, you're going to have to keep that guy away for a little bit longer so I can come up with some kind of answer. So if possible, could you flood his creek so he can't get across the road tomorrow? Is that an under, a low blow in the spiritual warfare? <clears throat> it was mostly for Mark's sake because I wanted to explain one or two things before I hit, went after this, this hell thing. I was hoping that Mark would have salvation in his heart before I hit the hell thing, really. And so I went to bed that night. I was tossing and turning. And so I said, I might as well pray through the night. I'm going to pray that prayer that the Lord will flood that creek and that I will have time to talk to Mark about salvation, the love of God again, before I paint the picture of true hellfire for him. So there I am. I'm not sure if Marie woke up when I was tossing around, but I decided to sit up and I went downstairs and I prayed for a while, and I ended up coming back upstairs, and I fell asleep, and I had this dream. And in this dream, there was Mark, and Mark was standing around a campfire, and there he is preaching to people. And it's like there's a whole group of them out in the wilderness there, and he's just telling them about God. You can hear the word God every once in a while, and, and second coming. You know, it's just really expressive. And then in the dream, this fog came right over and this dense fog moved in, and I couldn't hardly see him moving anymore. And then I woke up. I had that dream a couple times. And so there I am. I wake up. I go back to praying. I say, you know, I might as well just get up and read my Bible and find an answer. So I get up. I begin looking through the book of Revelation. I think I've got a good answer. Eventually you'll find out that it wasn't the best, but then the Lord gave me the exact answer at the time of the meeting. And Mark tells me as I interact with him that he got a phone call and his friend Jack can't get over the creek. It flooded. <laughs> so I said, thank you, Lord. So I said to him, I gave him my first stab at hellfire and then salvation. And we prayed together, and I said, just, I'm going to pray for you, and then if you want to just pray in your mind a prayer to God to say, God, I don't understand it all, but I want to have your peace in my life. And I remember we had some silence there in his cabin about that, and he he had said a silent prayer. I don't know exactly what it was. It was between him and God. And I think that prepared the way for when finally the creek did go down and his friend came. His friend came, but before his friend came, I told him about the dream I had. And I said, God is not just calling you to know this. He is calling you to believe it, yes, to accept this peace, yes, but also to be a spokesperson for him. And so eventually... Jack comes over the creek, comes up there in his rickety vehicle, and we're ready, as far as I can know, I'm ready for a spiritual showdown. And I'm not usually very out there warrior type and those type of things. I'm usually calm, I'm sitting back, I'm listening. So he begins to describe to me how his traditional view of hellfire is that God will take you and for a lifetime of sin, he will burn you in hell forever. And if you don't choose to repent, it's like a shotgun is held to your head or a gun is held to your head and you had better repent or you're going to hell. That's like a gun being held to your head. And I threw out a little thing like, well, maybe it's you holding the gun to your head. And then, though, I said to him, hmm, bingo, the Lord gave me a light bulb. I said, let's go ahead and read something. I went to Revelation 21. 
And before I did, I said, do you believe in self-defense? Like if, if some murderer was locked away because of something you said and you put him away in court and he, you got word that he's going to get out and come and, take, and kick down your door, take, your, take you guys and tie you up and torture and kill your whole family, I said, if you knew he was coming to kick down your door and you had a gun, would you deal with him when he came through that door? You better believe it, he said. That's self-defense. I said, okay, well, let's read something here. Revelation 20, verse 7, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Revelation 20, verse 8, the end of it. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. Imagine an innumerable army coming towards you. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city that he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. I said, there's your fire. And, of course, I went into some of the little Greek with him about forever and ever and how it can really just be until something burns up. Depends on your context. But I said, the point here isn't how long the fire burns. The point you're making is that somehow God is not justified and raining the fire down. But we have the same type of experience being described that I described to you. Satan has been released from prison. He's a murderer, the likes of which the world has never seen. He's inspired all murders. He's been released from prison, and he's coming to your house if you're in that city. And he's not only out to get you as the father of your house, he's out to get your children. Well, Jesus isn't in the city there. I said, yes, read the next chapter. He is in the city. The lamb is in the city. They need no light there because the lamb is there. So the lamb is in the city. His children are right there in the city with him. And how is he going to react when there's a murderer leading a whole army coming towards him? I said, do you believe in self-defense? Interesting, though. You said you can defend your family, but you won't let God defend his family. Why is it okay for you to defend your family, but for God not to defend his family? These people have already been tried, and they've put, been put in prison, in essence, and now they've been released, and they have shown that they're going to do the same thing again. They're going to torture Jesus all over again and kill his family. In fact, some of them are the ones who crucified him. Well, it was kind of quiet after that, and I handed him a little book called The Great Controversy. And I said, you might not re- want to read the whole thing, but read the last few chapters. And then you'll start seeing where I'm coming from on this. I didn't think it was, it's almost like you had two duelers and you were kind of at a standstill. I didn't see any point in clobbering him. But I said, just take some time and read. I went home, I flew out of there because my family was going to stay by and I was going to go back and do a Revelation Now series of meetings in Nebraska. And I have written here, I wrote it down from my eSword prayer journal, January 1, 2009. I'd flown back into Nebraska the 31st. So I wrote down this prayer request. May Mark learn to trust you as he studies your word. May he have a peace that passes all understanding. And may he become a spokesperson for you. May the dreams I have had about him become a reality. May they go from foggy to clear. Thank you for your, his eagerness. May it not be a passing fad. May your word speak to him.
That was my prayer request. I learned that that guy started going to church. Mark did. His friend didn't. My wife was there, so she answered questions, of course, when times came. But he began questioning the pastor of that local church. And I'm thankful that local, that local pastor was open to the same types of things I've just shared with you. Arguing and all of that, really, that's the surface. Below the surface is somebody who's hurting and really wants peace in their life. So was it me speaking or was it God's word speaking? It's never you and it's never me. It's always his word. He may give you a thought, but that thought originated with him. All wisdom and all power have come from him. The only reason why I was able to answer some of those things, even when God even showed me mercy for the flooding of the creek to give me time to answer those things, was because of his word. His word is that important. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, cuts right to the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so the word of God stands there, not as, not as a means of condemning you, but in essence pointing out that God knows everything there is to know about you anyway. He loves you. You're of eternal value to him. Why not choose to believe that this story is true? Why not choose to believe that it's written for you and that really he wants to get to your heart and extend peace to your heart? And then the third thing would happen, you would then extend it to other people. Paul goes on, Hebrews chapter 5, says we have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn. <laughs> That's not the easiest thing to write. In fact, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Train themselves in the word of God so that when somebody does come at you, it's not you answering it. It's basically you're just defending with God's word. And you're looking to cut those things that bind that person and set that person free. They have to be willing to hold it out there for you to cut. But God has put that mission on each one of our hearts. I'd like to say that those two individuals are preachers today, but they're not. But their story still echoes down and says to each one of us, is God's word true? Is it something that gives you peace when you read it? Is that peace something that even if you don't have the Bible around to read it, it still carries with you wherever you go? and you are willing to extend it to those around you? A little book, Great Controversy, that I gave that individual says that at the end of time, the Scriptures will be our only safeguard. Not the opinions of a pastor or professor or priest, but the Word of God. We are living in a time where we need to know it and rightly divide it and grow up in our knowledge of it. 
so then we can then extend it to the world around us. There I was, yes, 16 years old, sitting there on that back porch with a cup of hot chocolate, looking at that sunrise, wishing that I could have peace that I just had the day before. I wish I could still have it the day after. Here it was, found in a book. Every time Mark talked to me, he said, I feel so much at peace when I read that book. How could a book with just words on a page do that for somebody? Is it just some placebo effect? Or is it something that it's really worth checking into and reading on a daily basis? I saw Mark this last week. He chose not to remain anchored in this, at least not for now. And he's going through another fad, which is existentialism, where somehow you can depart from your body and, and go into la-la land. It's a theory of forms, really, Plato's theory of forms, just repackaged. And I said, well, um, let me know when you've landed again and we can talk. Because I know that he's an intelligent individual and that is not going to last very long for an intelligent individual. And we're friends. And I didn't open up the Word of God one time to him this last week, but I extended my friendship to him. And I'm allowing those seeds from the Word of God, I'm praying they'll come back to him and they will speak to him and that the Word of God will cut to his heart in ways that I can't even do. This new year is coming soon. And yes, I mentioned we have that Bible reading plan out there. But I don't like just reading through a Bible reading plan. I like looking at it as a way to stay connected to my friend. I like looking at it as a way that God can speak to me instead of me talking all the time. And so this new year, I hope that you will take time to do that as well. It may not be this Bible reading plan. It may be a different one. It may be that you have a, a devotional book that you read. But take time to know the Word of God, to accept it into your heart, and then to share it with others. And in that way, not only will every day be like Christmas, but in that way, the Word of God will speak and echo through this world. Father in heaven, thank you for this book, the Bible. Thank you for preserving it so we could have it and see the experiences of people long ago their experiences that echo down to our time and find relevance for our lives today. Lord, we ask you to give us the Bible, but Lord, we ask that this book will be committed to our hearts day by day as we study it, that we will then be empowered to share it with those around us, not as a fairy tale, something that's high in the sky, but something that is dear to our hearts that we've experienced and the peace that we have found we then share with those around us. Give us the Bible. May your word of God speak to us today and each day of the new year and into eternity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.